1: That house on the edge of the water, perfectly white. Even its gables, everything painted white. And the house itself was so small that when the soldiers stood in front, guarding it, they almost dwarfed it. Two stories, a basement, few rooms, in a small fishing village made country capital, and this week in 1986, the center of the world. That little house, in a land where gods were real, where nature, the mountains, the volcanoes, the sky, outshone man. So far away that both the Secret Service and the KGB could agree that that house was the place to have a talk. what he had to do if he could just get him to understand and then it hit
2: him gas mask
1: we need a gas mask here i'm old enough to remember world war one we banned the use of gas in war we didn't ban gas masks the target of his comment His negotiating partner, sometimes sparer, was younger than he. Mikhail Gorbachev, one of the youngest people ever to lead the Soviet Union, certainly the youngest in recent memory. During Reagan's first term, three men had died, all of them elderly, three leaders of the Soviet Union. Reagan wasn't talking about gas masks, really. He was talking about strategic defense, nuclear deterrent, something that could shoot down missiles either from the land, or more likely from space. A nuclear shield that could protect against the missiles that either nation, the USSR or the U.S., might launch at each other. SDI, in arms control parlance, where everything is an acronym. But known in the media as Star Wars. Reagan's signature program that he had announced in 1983, to the shock of his Secretary of State. And although they had heard a little bit about it, mostly to the shock, Of the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, Marines. Now it was under discussion and he was at an impasse. And when at an impasse, Reagan would do the same thing that he always did. Break down the big concept. Break down the complex into the little. So that people, real people, could understand and make sense of it. We need a gas mask here. Yet his audience for this comment looked at Reagan, the scar on his head, now iconic, visible, known to Reagan and the Americans, but rarely seen on Soviet TV. Gorbachev just stared, then spoke. We will discuss in the next session. And he gathered his papers. The actor, disappointed that he didn't, hit the audience with the note that he would like. All right. Reykjavik was supposed to be a short meeting, not a summit, just a planning meeting and a good PR opportunity for both leaders. Reagan was not the president of Iceland, but he made sure to act the part of host at this meeting. After all, how the media would view it was most important. He arrived first, and he greeted the Soviet leader, took him by the arm, and almost helped him up the stairs. A Soviet member of the delegation said, oh, we lost the PR battle right there, we thought. This had happened before in 1985 in Geneva where Reagan darted out of the car and here's Gorbachev in his big coat because it's freezing out there and there's Reagan risking pneumonia in a suit. And he does it again in Reykjavik. They both sit down, two chairs in a house with that beautiful view of the sea. Out there, there's Iceland is the perfect location. It's in between the United States and Europe. It's in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Not too far for the Russian delegation to arrive by boat on one of the princes of the Russian Navy. Not too far for Reagan to arrive by plane. Reagan is planning to be home. This is Saturday. He's planning to be home Sunday at night to eat dinner with Nancy. Gorbachev starts. I and the Soviet leadership place real value on your agreeing to this meeting. Reagan goes for the close, or what he thinks is the close. It's important to make sure your visit to the United States will be as productive as possible. See, Reagan wanted Gorbachev to come to Washington. That was to be the real summit, a later meeting where they could discuss everything. That's what he wanted out of this meeting, to secure another meeting, a definite time and place for another meeting in Washington with Gorbachev. He was quickly proved wrong. The Soviet leadership wants to solve the problem of the nuclear arms race. They were sitting in the chairs, now one-on-one, no foreign ministers, no one else but the translators. Reagan nodded and said, Dovierie, no provierie. This is now famously known as trust, but verify. Reagan had prepared for the meeting and for many months had been preparing with the help of Susan Macy, an expert in Russian culture. At the same time, he was building up the defense budget of the United States. He was also building up his own knowledge of Russian culture, and he had just delivered his zinger. Doviery, no, no proviere. Gorbachev says, both sides must agree on compliance. Okay. Would have been nice to acknowledge the joke, but Reagan goes for the close again. Do you have a date in mind for your trip to the United States? I was just getting to that, but we must first get concrete results. It would be a scandal to meet and not have results. This was a little surprising. Results at this meeting? Saturday and Sunday? Two-day meeting in a tiny house? Gorbachev then asks for the foreign ministers to be present, and Sharanatsi and George Shultz arrive, his foreign minister, Reagan's secretary of state. Once seated, Gorbachev dictated from what he had already memorized. Strategic arms form the basis of military strength in both sides. I will take the United States' point of view into concern in this meeting. George Shultz says later, Gorbachev was brisk, impatient, and confident. The air of a man who is taking charge of the meeting. We will cut our arms by 50%, if you will. As Ken Alderman, a 40-year-old arms control expert, would say about it later, it came loaded for bear. It continues. We will drop the question of French or British nuclear forces. Take them out of discussion. Now, I just have to point out the significance of that. This had stalled talks in Geneva for years. They were offering real proposals, Alderman said. Not PR, not Soviet stalling. Now, there is a sour note, but one that given the major concessions that had just been made must have struck at that time as almost... Unimportant. Both sides must observe the ABM Treaty and in full. This was his big request. A mutual understanding that strategic defenses remain in laboratories and not outside of it. He meant that SDI, Star Wars, missile defense, all of that program could be tested. You could run experiments. You could continue to develop the program, but don't take it outside the lab. In other words, keep all weapons out of space. Agree to that, and our foreign ministers can work on drafts to be signed during my visit to the United States. Everything I've heard is encouraging, but some points of difference remain. He meant SDI, and he figured he'd throw out an explanation. SDI makes elimination of nuclear weapons possible. The trouble, of course, is uh, defense was banned by treaties conducted back in the 1970s and signed the abm treaty between the united states and the ussr it banned defense i mean you have to put yourself in arms control nomenclature we're trying to do as little of that as possible i don't want to lose you dear audience (laughs) but um because of the mutually assured destruction and the pattern that that creates that i have missiles pointed at you you have missiles pointed at me arms control talks Began with a point of equalization and anything like a defense system. If I have a shield and you don't, that's an imbalance that throws you off. And so the ABM, the treaty that we had signed was based. One of the provisions was that no one could do what Reagan was proposing, build a missile defense. The only place that the ABM allowed missile defense was around the Capitol. And the Soviet Union, of course, did construct a. A ballistic missile defense, Earth-bound, Earth-launched missiles around Moscow. The United States politically could not do that around Washington and not and leave the rest of the country in a democracy unsafe, so it never built such defenses. Reagan had hurriedly announced Star Wars, not consulting his leaders, um, but it was still a big program for him, he tells Gorbachev. Each side could watch the other. We could share the technology. You are proposing to renounce the ABM treaty? Reagan didn't answer the question. Forget about us. What if there's a madman? What if there's a man like Hitler? What if he builds nuclear weapons? A madman? Gorbachev doesn't answer that question. Just says, I hope you will consider our new proposals. Reagan tries that gas mask analogy. There's nothing from Gorbachev. He takes his papers. And the morning meeting, one of four that Reagan and Gorbachev will have in a grueling weekend, comes to an end. At Reykjavik, there were no bureaucrats, George Shultz said. The leader of the world's most expensive military force and the head of the best intelligence operations in the United States were not there in Hulfty House. The news TV network spent millions. Send hundreds of people. None of them can get in. And then the rain starts, and it would rain off and on throughout this weekend. George Shultz joked that it would just perfectly match the mood of the weekend, alternately raining and stopping. Gorbachev, for his part, had some significant people with him. The head of all the armed forces in the Soviet Union, for the first time, had joined a a diplomatic delegation. What does that mean? The U.S. delegation shock. Does that mean uh, the military is watching him closely? He was without his Politburo, but he obviously had maneuvered them into some concessions. I believe the world wanted bold decisions, Gorbachev would say later in his memoir. There were people who wanted to wait for Reagan to leave office in order to make proposals. I was not one of them. There was no time. This break was needed for the American side to consider what had just happened. And nine grown men were stuffed into the bubble. This is a glass-walled structure, a tin tinfoil-like top that could not be bugged inside the U.S.-Icelandic embassy. Uh, Reagan jokes before he goes in that it looks like an aquarium, and it does. It's so small that everybody's in folding chairs around a tiny table. One man uh, had to sit on the floor. That's how crowded it was. Reagan tries to talk to the team to remember what Gorbachev had proposed. Was it 4,600 missiles? Did that include launchers or was it just the warheads? He didn't know. 6,000 something. George, do you remember? He asked Schultz. Schultz doesn't actually remember the numbers either. And then he remembers he was handed a flyer almost that Gorbachev had used to summarize. All his proposals. Ken Alderman, arms control expert, later says Gorbachev knew his man. When they read them, the arms control team is shocked. All they can do is wait and see what happens in the next meeting. The Saturday afternoon session at Reykjavik was the real deal. Now it's four principals: Gironazi, Schultz, Gorbachev, and Reagan. There's also two translators and two note takers. So they're all squeezed into this room. It's small and there's barely room for the papers. The pitchers of water are kind of precarious on the on the table surface. Reagan sits behind a giant painting of a former Icelandic prime minister. And it's kind of interesting because the history of it is that prime minister was very anti-Soviet, and he and Reagan are staring together at Gorbachev in this tiny room. Translation is consecutive in this meeting. That means I say everything in either Russian or English, and then it's translated. It's not translated as I'm speaking, because they want maximum accuracy, and that improves accuracy greatly. Notes are recorded on both sides of everything that's said. Reagan knows the objection that Gorbachev has, and he chisels at Gorbachev's strategic defense initiative position. SDI would not be used for offense, as the Soviet have said. That's wrong. If we wanted to hit Earth targets, we'll use Earth missiles. No one is building an entirely new weapon in space, he's arguing. Now, I've also heard the argument out there that we would strike first and then use Our shield. We'd hide behind our shield. We don't have that capability, Reagan says, and it is not our objective. You keep talking about the ABM Treaty. The Soviets have already broken that. You built an illegal radar facility in Siberia. Gorbachev either knew that or at least chose not to argue. Reagan continues I'm not clear. And what would be the subject of the negotiations that you suggested. I'll let you know later, Gorbachev says. Reagan then suggests that the armed control experts meet at 8 p.m. to consider the proposals, and he, he names his team. His team will be Paul Neitz, uh, Richard Pearl, Alderman, and a, and a few others. Gorbachev isn't happy with just this. He asks for a number, a goal. For the two of us, that the two of us would agree on. Well, Reagan says, I like a 50% cut, but the issue should be handled by experts. This is not a matter for experts, Gorbachev replies. And he hands him a sheet. Here is the data. Here is our weapons. Let's just cut these numbers in half, Mr. President. There's a pause. and Reagan said, I said before, your proposals are interesting. Schultz now tries to intervene to be helpful. This is a bold idea. This is just what is needed, Gorbachev says. Let us not slurp the soup of the negotiators who have been debating all these years. Schultz takes notice at this. Gorbachev just gave Reagan a signal. He's not happy with the usual Soviet way. This is serious stuff, though. This is talk of warheads. these are things that can obliterate countries, destroy the world, engulf the U.S., or destroy its allies. You know, this can't be taken lightly. You know, you have to be in the mindset of Schultz and Reagan right now. I mean, do you really want a split-second yes right here in this meeting just to agree on numbers? Can I have this sheet, Reagan says. Yes. You have all our secrets. If ever I thought the U.S. side was being deceitful, this talk would have to end. That won't happen, Reagan assured him. As he sees Reagan looking at the sheet, Gorbachev says, This is really the only way out of the forest. Both men had studied each other. Gorbachev knew that Reagan liked a little flourish. But Reagan would like his way out of the forest a little better defined. He presses Gorbachev, the meeting tonight of the arm control experts so they can discuss all this data. Will you send your people? Yes, Gorbachev says, but he's disappointed. We can agree, and he adds another concession, we can agree to limit systems aimed at Europe. This is huge. Russian nuclear systems aimed at Europe. He's going to reduce. Remember, episode 10, you're the missile. We talked about how scary it was for Europe. All those songs, bonovox, 99 Luftballons, the like, right? Gorbachev is now offering to put down the gun at Europe's head. Reagan doesn't address it immediately. Instead, he talks about history. How after World War II, the U.S. could have dictated to the world, but we did not. Gorbachev wasn't interested in a history lesson. Next issue, we will agree to limits in the systems as I indicated. And then he turns to Reagan, what will you do? You have not taken a step. It's human nature uh, when someone does that to you, right? And, And certainly for someone untrained in negotiation to either say like, okay, you want a step, here's my step. Or to argue like, yes, I have, I've taken steps. Reagan doesn't. No reaction. And this moment says a lot about the two men who would, in the end, finish the Cold War. I picture one of those robot battle TV shows where, you know, one of the robots has like a buzzsaw and the other one has like a forklift, you know, and they're hitting each other. The image of Gorbachev we have in, in the United States, I think, because of the history and the hindsight, is, you know, friendly, uh, sort of a lot friendlier certainly than the other Soviet leaders. But in debate, you're talking about a guy who's the master of Soviet inside politics, who's used to dressing down bureaucrats and generals, who could be flattering when he needed to be to the right people. But in debate, he was a buzzsaw. Now, this is a guy that got his start as a young man in the party Congress that condemned uh, Stalin in the 50s. Reagan, the president, the old uh, SAG labor negotiator and well-timed, rehearsed actor and broadcaster, and by this time in 1986, let us also say politician, could take a few blows. You don't yip because your debate opponent says to do so. More Budsaw Saw from Gorbachev.
0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: SDI must be confined to laboratories. No response. And in this afternoon meeting, each one becomes a little silent after all the main issues, missiles in Asia, SDI, the Washington summit upcoming, the meeting at night. Schultz tries to intervene. The problem is that Gorbachev interrupts him. I would like to hear from the president. This is something to say about Reykjavik, by the way. Everybody confirms it who is there. Schultz talked more than Sharanatsi, certainly, but Schultz didn't get a chance to talk much. The talk was between the two players. At this point, Reagan does talk. Before we get around to weapons, we should find out what causes mistrust among us. You're right, Gorbachev says. And then he proceeds to not address the trust, but to go back to the weapons. I've already told you, our weapons in Asia cannot breach European targets. Now, how could you break the ABM Treaty? Reagan says that the ABM Treaty was already violated by the Soviets. And SDI, it's the greatest opportunity for peace in the 20th century. And as for the ABM, those rules, that old treaty, you know, it used to be rules were there to to protect civilians, not combatants. Now we can't protect our civilians. It's not civilized, Reagan says. And he repeats what he has said in the past again and again. We will share the technology. Gorbachev winces. And to be fair, it wasn't irrational for him to do so. Keep in mind, in 1986, there are no tech transfers occurring between the United States and the USSR. Even oil production, and Gorbachev will bring this up later, Technology. Is being withheld. We're not even sharing, forget about military secrets. We're not sharing industrial secrets. And SDI involves complex plans, not just one item of technology, but lots of things that could reveal other American secrets. So Gorbachev just isn't even having it at this point. Reagan goes on Think about it. You and me standing here and telling others, we have SDI, and now. We can get rid of nuclear weapons. Remember, Reagan reminds him, it could be a madman. And now, instead of invoking Hitler, he uses another man, a man familiar to us, Gaddafi. You know, if Gaddafi had weapons, he would be using them, Reagan says. My remarks will be less philosophical, Gorbachev answers. The U.S. can do many things that we cannot do, nonetheless. We could not begin reductions of nuclear weapons while the ABM treaty was destroyed. I'm not destroying the ABM treaty, Reagan says. And then he adds that with the success we're having with SDI we will have it in less than 10 years. George Shultz is thinking, not saying, but thinking during this meeting, what progress making with SDI? There is no progress whatsoever. It wasn't much more than a presidential proposal on paper. The American note-taker, not the Soviet note-taker, interestingly enough, the American note-taker at this afternoon session makes an important observation. Gorbachev took note of what Reagan said. He wrote it down that Reagan said that he would have progress in less than 10 years. Now, Reagan realizes it's going nowhere between he and Gorbachev in this afternoon session. Just kick it to the next one. But first, one more try. You said that the Soviets don't need SDI, that you have a better solution. He suggests perhaps both of us could go ahead on solutions. And if the Soviets have a better one, you can share it with us. The Soviet solution would be not better, but different, Gorbachev answers. And then he adds, I am sorry to say I cannot take you seriously, your your sharing of SDI. He brings up all the oil equipment that the U.S. won't share. But Gorbachev hints that he takes Reagan seriously, if not the proposal of sharing missile defense. And he's good at politics, Russian politics, dark politics at least. Uh, If you gave up SDI, you would have a second American revolution. It would never happen. Reagan insists, if I thought the benefits of SDI would not be shared, I would give up the program myself. Gorbachev maybe getting a little bit tired now. I don't think the president knows what SDI contains. It's not as rude as it sounds. You know, sharing SDI means sharing so many other secrets, some of them nuclear, uh, transfers long banned. It's not just one piece of paper they're going to hand off. But Reagan ignores the comment and remembers he's got to talk about human rights in the Soviet Union. As his, uh, He hands Gorbachev a list of dissidents he wants dealt with. And the two leave. Now, the night session should be discussed as Gorbachev and Reagan are, and, and Schultz and Chevernazzi are sleeping. Um... Schultz has woken up at one point, Gorbachev's woken up at another, but they're not nothing. Um, They are productive sessions and more productive than what is remembered. The Soviets, for instance, agree to equal proportional cuts. So Gorbachev had ordered 50%. Trouble is, Soviets have more nuclear weapons. 50% means you're still left with more. They agree to proportional cuts to actually have the same amount in the end. And one of the things that's happening that the American side notices the leader of all Soviet land, air forces, Uh, he's basically equivalent of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he's there as a negotiator, and it's kind of interesting because when the Joint Chiefs in the U.S. finds out, he's so mad that he wasn't at Reykjavik, but they didn't know. And as the old Russian arms control negotiators, the same type of people that had been Through the 60s and 70s and early 80s, at these talks, stalling, stalling, and stalling. When they try their tricks, the old general dresses them down. Their leader, Gorbachev, wants progress. The American side is impressed. Significant progress is made. And at the end, you have this scene where these 10 people or so are trying to figure out how to record the agreement that they made. You know, they have this. uh, Icelandic photocopier that was brought in, but nobody can seem to get it to work. So in the end, they write the agreement down on a piece of carbon copy paper that a Soviet colonel has. Soviet high tech, he jokes. Reagan wakes. Sunday. He's refreshed, he's upbeat, heads into the U.S. Embassy, the bubble glass room again. Schultz summarizes. He says to Reagan, look, they're making concessions. Maybe we should make a concession, Mr. President. Let's agree to a test ban treaty. It's fairly harmless. We're not doing much testing anyway. Reagan's fine with it. The rain is pouring down. Sunday morning shows in America can do little but speculate. They have no idea what's going on in that little white house. All they can do is cover Resa Gorbachev is, is going around the, the country of Iceland, visiting everything, and that's all the news media has to cover. Nancy Reagan didn't even make this meeting. They didn't realize it was going to be an important summit. Reagan notes to Schultz the obvious. This is not the meeting about a summit. This is the summit. It's true. I mean, the piece of carbon paper has more concessions More progress than the U.S. and USSR have made in seven years. Back in the conference room, the leader of the world's largest atheistic state begins by quoting the Bible. The Bible says that first came the first day, then the second. We are now on our second day, with still a long way before our seventh. We should be resting, Reagan jokes. Yes, because it is Sunday. Gorbachev says, revealing that he gets the joke but does not really feel the humor much. Reagan then surprises even Schultz with what he says. With a few exceptions, I am disappointed by what had been achieved by the arms control group. What? Schultz is thinking. The Russians gave some great concessions. Is this an old SAG negotiating tactic or did Reagan just forget? but it represents a give and take on both sides. I, too, was disappointed, Gorbachev says. Schultz is starting to wonder if they read the document. Gorbachev continues, We have made major concessions. The U.S. side is not giving any impulse to these discussions. Reagan doesn't address the gripe. He moves on intermediate missiles. Although Gorbachev was agreeing to remove the threat to Europe, he said nothing about Asia where there are missiles that threaten Japan, Korea, the Philippines, allies of the United States, and they're concerned about them. Plus, he says, you know, these weapons in Asia are mobile. They could be moved to Europe. The concerns you're raising are not serious, Gorbachev said. Reagan insisted that they were, and restated his objections about being able to move the missiles. We are not at a press conference, Gorbachev says. Let us speak of facts. Reagan didn't expect this. So he did what Reagan did very often, took a step back, and tried to look at the larger picture. If we could reduce our forces to zero, we could stand shoulder to shoulder and tell other nations to do the same. It would be hard to think they wouldn't agree. I was not in a position a year ago to say nothing of three years ago, Mr. President, to make the kind of proposals I can make now. In other words, hey, I got politics too. You know, the old Khrushchev saying, you have your senators, I have my generals. Gorbachev had his generals. He has his politburo to deal with. He has hardliners. And he adds, I may not be in a position a year from now to do this. Reagan agrees. The two of us are in the same position. Either of us could soon be without authority. It is year six of Reagan's term, so we kind of know when that point is. Gorbachev answers, The proposals I brought to Reykjavik leave my conscience clear. I can look you in the eye and say that. And it may be, he says, it may be impossible for us to reach agreement. But he throws out a cookie. If Asia is a concern, we'll reduce to 100 warheads. And you, 100 warheads. I'll agree to that. Reagan says. And Gorbachev is no doubt incredulous. It was the U.S. position anyway that he was agreeing to. That's good, Mr. President. When will the U.S. start making concessions of its own? Again, Reagan doesn't take the opportunity to offer any. Yet, it's worth noting, in Hofty House in Iceland, the commander-in-chief had, in effect, wiped out his enemy's European threat, now working on most of the Asia threat, without a war. it was not over. Now the buzzsaw is back. Gorbachev says, this will test if the U.S. will meet us halfway. Can you agree to uphold the ABM treaty for 10 years? Yes. And confine SDI to laboratories? No. Now Gorbachev says something strange. The U.S. has scored breakthroughs in one or two areas. We know what they are. It was either bluff, a mistake, misinformation from the KGB. Whatever it was, it was revealing, because the U.S. had made no breakthroughs in 1986, would make nothing for many, many years, and in fact, the program's very limited now. But the Soviets, perhaps, thought that they did make breakthroughs. Reagan then says, With respect to SDI, I made a pledge to the American people that SDI would constitute disarmament and peace. I cannot retreat from that pledge. Schultz, Ken Alderman later are going to say, Reagan never made any pledge. He announced the program. He never made a pledge. But it doesn't matter, because Gorbachev agrees that Reagan made a pledge and also agrees that the program is making mythical progress. Yes, Gorbachev says, We have taken into account your concerns. We know that you are bound by the pledge. Then having heard Reagan's proverb about trust and verify, I have heard an American expression that it takes two to tango. Mock-ups can be done in laboratories. This isn't the end of SDI. So, for instance, Mr. President, the madman that you mentioned were to use weapons. The program would still be available to counter them. The efforts in the lab would insure against it. No, in fact, they would not, Reagan says, and he tries to reason. Why are you defending the ABM? It bans defense. He even at one point says, what the hell are we defending here? Gorbachev had in a declassified memo that uh, about his meeting and the Politburo revealed later that he, he tells his Politburo ABM must be preserved. That scrapping it would be a loss of balance for the Soviets. Allowing weapons in space would be the only place where they could lose balance in the superpower relationship. Gorbachev now answers Reagan. The ABM didn't come from a bolt in the blue. It was years of discussions by leaders on both sides. No one, including me, can agree to eliminate it. Now, this is all about the U.S. position, it is time for the U.S. to take a step in the Soviet direction. Reagan doesn't jump. Then Gorbachev says, I have heard you do not like to make concessions. This leads Reagan to launch into a history of Soviet deceit, of broken agreements, uh, that the Soviets, yes, there's a misunderstanding, Reagan says, but the Soviets are more to blame. Every Soviet leader, he says, up to you. So far, has endorsed a world communist state. He brings up Cuba, he the many times the US offered to eliminate nuclear arms that were rebuffed, you know, but he's he's talking about things in the fifties and sixties. Gorbachev is exasperated, and so Reagan offers why he's going on this little digression. This is why we suspect Soviet motives. Do not waste time and energy. Let us return to the present, Gorbachev says. And then doesn't return to the present. <laughs> we right now recognize the right of the United States to determine their choice of government and their president. I was surprised when you remained true in a recent statement to calling the Soviet Union an evil empire. I fail to see how such statements are an appropriate forward to our discussion here. Reagan answers, There's a Communist Party in the United States. They're allowed to run in elections. There are no parties in the Soviet Union. I would be happy to have a wide-ranging discussion about political and moral issues at another time, Mr. President. Now at a critical moment, George Shultz tries to intervene. Let's put some language together, shall we? Gorbachev says, no, there's too much disagreement. Reagan tells the gas mask story again, and again, an eye roll from the Soviet leader. Gorbachev now says, This is a package. What we propose here today, the arms cuts, are a package. This means, and uh, Gorbachev had not said this before, and he, in that declassified memo, did not even tell his Politburo that he was going to link these two items He was insisting that all the nuclear missile cuts that they had discussed now in Reykjavik were tied to confining SDI in the labs. Reagan picks up on it immediately. There should be no linkage. We already agreed to cuts. Gorbachev, who had earlier admonished Reagan for talking about history, now gripes. You broadcast Voice of America in the Soviet Union. We are not allowed to do the same. Your press conference, Reagan says, will be on American TV. That's not true in the Soviet Union. Mine will not be. Half the films shown in the Soviet Union are American. You do not show Soviet films. They are way off track now, at a very bad time when they should be making more progress. But Reagan can't resist some explanation. After all, he's pretty familiar with the movie business. That is the free market. If viewers like something, it will sell. The Kirov ballet is popular in in America. The United States doesn't let our labor union leaders meet with yours, but we allow your labor union leaders into the Soviet Union. Ken Alderman would write later, The euphoria of a few hours ago now faded, and we'd have to decide how to deal with Gorbachev's sudden sprung trap. The two sides decide to break for an hour and let Schultz and Shevardnadze uh, try to get more agreement. Schultz notes that during this session, neither leader Gorbachev nor Reagan turned to their foreign ministers to ask a question. Schultz and Chevronauts get nowhere. I mean, they they write communiques, but they're two different communiques, and they have completely different ideas on the ABM Treaty and SDI. You know, Reagan's broken his promise now to Nancy, and it's clear that he's going to be not back at dinner at 8 o'clock like he intended. Don Reagan, the chief of staff at this time, is a little concerned about President's stamina, but. He asks uh, George Shultz, how feisty is, is Gorbachev being? Uh, because if Gorbachev is mild, I'm worried that you know Reagan can stay in this. But if Gorbachev is feisty, Reagan will be okay. Shultz knew that there'd be no problem with Reagan. The meanings of arm control experts, the meaning of Schultz and Chevron really is not the important thing. And everyone kind of knows this. There isn't enough agreement. It's going to come down to the two leaders. So after this, a little lunch, they meet again. And things cool down a bit. You know, each one takes sides of the other positions. Gorbachev starts. We are not trying to bury SDI. Reagan says, why are you so attached to the ABM? You have a better defense structure anyway. This was true. Moscow had developed a ring of anti-ballistics so that even if the country was destroyed, perhaps the center of it would not be. And here, in this last session, Reagan goes for the personal touch. Ten years from now, I will be a very old man. You and I could come to Iceland and bring the last nuclear missile with us, I don't know if I will last another 10 years, especially dealing with an American president who is sapping all my strength. I have heard reports that you do not like concessions and only want to be a winner. But both sides must be winners, Mr. President. Now, Reagan, why not just announce what we did agree on and debate ABM and SDI in Washington? No, there are tight relationships between offense and defense, Mr. President. It is clear that Gorbachev feared SDI and thought there was more progress on technology. And you have to understand, on on this time, that computers and that kind of technology were leapfrogging the inferior and scarce Soviet computers, very rigorously controlled in the country. Not to mention lasers, miniaturization. The Soviets were far, far behind. Their fear showed. All or nothing, Gorbachev says. Reagan doesn't answer, but just says, let's take a break.
2: They go into a quick huddle,
1: but there's no movement on SDI from Reagan. He doesn't want to drop it. Before Reagan goes in for what will be a final quick meeting with Gorbachev, he asks, George, Paul, Ken. Am I right? They respond, "Yes." Ken Alderman argues. Years later, hardliners in the U.S. would say they kept Reagan from caving on SDI. It didn't happen, and everyone there at Reykjavik knew it. The president knew where he stood. This has to be my final effort, Reagan says. He goes back into the meeting with Gorbachev, reads a statement. Gorbachev says, this has no reference to containing SDI to the laboratory. Is this on purpose, Mr. President? Reagan says yes, but skips further discussion on it. It would be fine with me if we eliminated all nuclear weapons. As he does this, he hands Schultz a note, and you got to remember, we're still, maybe there's a friendlier Soviet leader than we had, but we're still talking about high-stakes poker here, Hand Schultz a note that says, George, am I right? Schultz whispers in Reagan's ear, absolutely, Mr. President. Okay, so this is a moment. No American president ever proposed banning nuclear weapons. Here we have a chance for agreement, Gorbachev said. Hope. But then the hope is lowered. I am apprehensive about SDI. Why can it not be confined to laboratories? I have promised the American people. This is your final position? Yes. I cannot give in. Is that your last word? Yes. I have a problem you don't have. If anyone criticizes you, they go to jail. Then Reagan tries to explain how the right wing of the U.S. will be against him. I have people who are very critical of the Soviet Union who supported me. Now Gorbachev approaches this as he says, a confidential matter between two leaders. That is the way that I assume you are speaking to me, Mr. President. And so I will be frank. I think... You are three steps away from being a great president. For me, this is the last opportunity. With support from your side, we can solve very important problems. If you cannot agree, the people will say it should be left for another generation. Now, you have not made a substantial step all weekend long. Reagan tries a different angle. Listen to what I'm proposing. We're talking here, he tells Gorbachev, about one word, laboratories. The abolition of nuclear weapons should not come down to one word. Then he says, I'm asking you for a favor. As two leaders, as two negotiators, I'm asking you for a favor. Let's drop this one word, laboratories. Yours is not an acceptable request, Gorbachev answers. With your favor, I would be permitting the U.S. to destroy our offensive nuclear potential. You are asking me to give up the thing I have promised not to give up. And I, Gorbachev says, would go home as a dummy and not a leader. If we could confine SDI to laboratories, I would sign in two minutes. My conscience is clear, Mr. President. What... I have done, for the people who have depended on me, I have done. And with those words, the two leaders exited. All that comes out of these two days of shock, give and take, direct talk, is the aides gathering and saying, it's no deal Now, the two leaders go out as Reagan goes into his limo, and there could have been an exchange where Gorbachev said, I don't know what else I could have done, and Reagan said, you could have said yes. Or maybe that didn't happen. It's not in the Soviet side's account. Um, maybe Reagan might have just said, it's too bad, and Gorbachev gave his regards to Nancy Reagan I was mad, Reagan said in his diary. James Conn, who is his body man, said that he had never seen him so distraught. It's the exact same thing that Don Regan says. Regan's not in the house. He's not in Hulte House, but he's there in Iceland. And as they ride back in the limo to the airport, Reagan tells him, I was this close to banning nuclear weapons. He makes a speech to soldiers in Iceland. He's back in the U.S. by 11. Gorbachev makes a speech to Soviet TV, long speech. Reagan, he said, was being controlled by too many men. It could not be more inaccurate (laughs) because not everyone was disappointed that Reykjavik uh, didn't result in the banning of nuclear weapons, though uh, the news coverage and history has gone with that angle of this event. Reagan's anti-communist CIA director Bill Casey basically screams at Ken Alderman, "What the hell went on there?" The joint chief says, "Where was my man? I sent him there. What was he thinking?" Some of the European NATO countries, you know, far from celebrating that the U.S. was thinking about banning nuclear weapons, are shocked. How could you do that? We're to leave us defenseless. What kind of crazy talk was going on in Iceland? It's not just Margaret Thatcher, who's, who's, you know, similar to Reagan, a hardliner, an anti-Soviet, who's shocked by it. The socialist president of France, Francois Mitterrand, is shocked. Here's what Ken Alderman says, as excited as he was about Reykjavik and what had happened. Um, I suspect that any signed agreement there wouldn't have stuck. It might have been like the 1905 deal between Kaiser Wilhelm and Tsar Nicholas where their accord in European security was so roundly rebuffed after they returned home that they had to weasel out of the deal.
2: For Gorbachev,
1: Reykjavik was not a failure, but a watershed. He doesn't say it then, but he will say that later. Shevardnadze said that Reykjavik had released the world from Cold War confrontation. Schultz said once those proposals were made by the Soviets, the genie was out of the bottle. I believe, too, that this story told as a failure in Reagan's presidency in most accounts. And, you know, you see coverage of that final meeting between Gorbachev and, and the look on both their faces, just a stark disappointment. It was roundly criticized by so many who, who were, you know, Kennedy comes out bashing Reagan, you know, you gave up Cuts in nuclear weapons for a, a program that's not even working. It says a lot about Reagan. His good negotiation skills, but also flexibility on ideas. His facility and knowledge. Some of the old tactics, the stories, you know, failed on this new leader. Wasn't really receptive, was more intellectual. But he did adjust his arguments. And he retained influence. He wasn't knocked out of place by the Soviets acting in a surprising way. In this episode, we are looking at that old question, if Reagan deserves credit for winning the Cold War, ending the Cold War, credit that most accounts give him. There's a lot of that question, but we should look at it. How can you do a series, dozen Ronald Reagans, and not talk about the Cold War, not talk about this question? Does he get too much credit? Does he get too little? Do we even win the Cold War? These are all questions now that are being asked. And it's especially important as Russia really has never left the stage. It might be more of an American invention that it did, but now is much more prominent in our news. When asked himself, Reagan never took credit for what was assigned to him by pundits and historians later. His comment on the matter, when asked, I would think that Mr. Gorbachev deserves credit as the leader of his country. That was somewhat unsatisfying. Reagan, generally polite, somebody engaged in diplomacy. So it might be uh, uh, up to us to say, is he just being polite or does he deserve more credit? And plus the issue is such a live one in our politics because there are so many Reagan imitators who want to take that example and use that success story to justify their own approach and own Positions. So it's not just a history question in that way. The man Reagan would sit across from in Iceland at 56 was younger than any leader the Soviets had seen in their lifetime. He was ardent, he was active, he would usher reforms and change a massive country so much. Though it end the nation that he led, though he certainly didn't intend that, and one imagines that Gorbachev came in kind of a a revolution, like one of those Arab Spring or Orange revolutions that you see now, that there are a bunch of youth, you know, at the door of the Kremlin protesting, demanding change, and then the Soviets decided to appoint a new leader, one ensconced in ideas of reform. This is not the case. Gorbachev was the insider, in fact, a very, very good one. Well-known in the party, connected, fast riser. And he was the protege of Yuri and Dropoff. We talked about him in the last episode. And that means he was well-connected to the KGB. And Dropoff was the former head of the KGB for many years. And... He made his name, Gorbachev, from being in control of an area where many of the party apparitionics would vacation, and Gorbachev was the host who would go out to see them and made those very important connections. Everyone knew who he was. In fact, his terms as head of agriculture were produced some of the worst results in the nation's history. But he did, as part of that position, visit Canadian farms in the 1970s as part of a culture exchange and resolved to do something that would make the USSR's farms as productive as Canada's. Didn't want to destroy the Soviet Union. He wanted to fix it. In the events of Reagan's first term that we discussed, up until the point that he's reelected, Gorbachev is not a factor in any documented policy decisions. Yes, he has a sort of vice presidency. He's chairing Politburo meetings because then drop-off, and then Chernenko are too sick, too ill to really cover all of them. But there's no documented decision or action towards Reagan's policies that he's in control of. And as we discussed several times on this program, it always must be remembered. If Reagan was a one-termer, Gorbachev wouldn't be a factor with him. and Dropov, who has really made Gorbachev his protege, along with Ligachev and a couple others, Arbatov, the, the party boss, and a couple others, was, you know, not a friendly, smiling face. He was the man who ushered in the Hungary, the crackdown in Hungary, and in Czechoslovakia, ran the KGB. And yes, he wanted to reform things, but his reform was more like putting workers back to work. Everybody stopped getting so drunk, stopped stealing, he wanted an anti-corruption, anti-worker laziness campaign. It was not to be. He dies in 84. And despite the fact that Gorbachev is associated with him, and seen kind of as the young guy ago, you know, and the and the the, the pull up bureau member that will will change things, sort of. He's blocked. The hardliners pass on him. So that's an important note. All of Reagan's actions, the build up, the Star Wars initial announcement, the Soviets decide not to go with the younger person, but to place Konstantin Chernenko. After and Andropov dies and as Reagan is running for re-election. And then when Chernenko dies in 85, it's still touch and go for a moment, according to one of his friends. By no means a certainty that Gorbachev was to take power. Hardliners on the committee that will decide who leads Chernenko's funeral, and whoever leads the funeral in the Soviet times was the one that would take over power. They want... A man named Victor Grishkin, another hardliner. There's eight members in the pull-up bureau who are around when Chernenko dies, and there is this kind of speculation, and we don't know that perhaps Chernenko's plug was pulled. There are three hardliners who are away. One of them's in San Francisco. The other one's in a far away uh, Tajikistan. They're all the, the others in the Ukraine. They can't get to Moscow for an immediate meeting to deal with this crisis of the leader having died. The eight members that are there, three men were in their 60s, three were over 60, and Gorbachev and one other are the only ones in their 50s. This is a group of old leaders. Minutes before the announcement of Chernenko's death and the appointment of the new leader, Gorbachev meets with Gromyko. Gromyko is well-known in the United States, and Grim Grom is what they call him. He's foreign minister. He's been in government since the 50s. He's still there, and this means he has pull. It's a U.S. line. He was always trouble in negotiations. But here, he makes it clear he wants action, and apparently asks for the presidency of the Soviet Union, kind of a nice retirement title, in exchange for supporting Gorbachev. It's not a discussion of any reforms here. It's pretty insider stuff. We must make sure we are uh, one on this, Gorbachev says. Gromyko answers. I think it is clear. Later, when Viktor Grishkin makes his play in the meeting to block Gorbachev, it is the KGB director. Viktor Chebrikov, who threatens to expose corruption in Christian's family, yes, compromat, and Christian becomes a big supporter of Gorbachev, and Gorbachev is chosen. Now, just in case we think that this guy Cherybrikov is a uh, is a great guy or an angel, we should know that. Uh, during his time as KGB leader, which continues into Gorbachev's term, he 's going to completely destroy the American operation of CIA informants, and we know now that part of this was the result of having Aldrich James in Washington supplying the Soviet and then the Russian government with information. he's going to brutally destroy, in some case executing or jailing up to eighty people who were CIA informants in Moscow. So this isn't a uh, you know popular folk hero that puts Gorbachev into power. KGB is going to get a little bit better treatment under Perestroika, being able to do what it wants to do a little bit more than other agencies. Gromyko pushes the party committee, talking of how fierce Gorbachev was. He's a man of iron teeth. That's a big compliment, Soviet Union. Writer David Murray of Foreign Policy sums it up well. Gorbachev was not chosen because of the US or Ronald Reagan or SDI. Rather, he was the shining light on the hill. Reagan was obviously not a member of the Politburo. He could not be in the walnut room of the Kremlin. He had no vote. But I should at least explore a theory that perhaps Reagan got to Gromyko. I mean, Gromyko meets Reagan in 1984, right before Reagan's reelection. Gromyko tells Reagan that his hardline rhetoric is working. He says, you know, you are trying to undermine our system of government. And maybe because Gromyko knows what Reagan's doing, he goes to Gorbachev. Peter Schweitzer gives his book an in-depth analysis, how economic stresses of the war in Afghanistan amplify the effects of embargoes set by the United States and NATO. That pressure leads to the end. Peter Schweizer's take on it is that Gromyko was signaling. We're feeling the pressure. Well, you can at least explore that theory. Uh, Gromyko, hardliner turned reformer, but he also had personal political interest to do it. This is a complaint that Gromyko makes in that meeting in the White House. You're trying to undermine us that Gorbachev repeats in Reykjavik. Does that mean... You got to them? Does that mean you intimidated them into caving in? It's accurate, I think, and many people who look at it believe that it's accurate, that the system was slipping. One of Gorbachev's allies, uh, Rzikov, who's now one of those Russian oligarchs banned from being in the United States, uh, spoke of how the growth of the so-called Asian tigers, Hong Kong, Japan, Taiwan, Korea, scared them. The American, Schultz, who had an economic background, he was Treasury Secretary under Nixon, you know, Schultz showed them charts, like, you guys are losing. So there's an American role in in, in putting that idea in their heads as well, but they knew it. Georgi Sheknazovovi said that the system was in a miserable state of semi-paralysis, and everyone knew it was a disgraceful farce. Gorbachev's friend Yakolov said, after all the old leaders... It was historically logical to go with a young man like Gorbachev to try to get the economy going, make the USSR great again, perhaps. We looked at the breakup of the Soviet Union as if that was the end of the Cold War and as if we had caused it. That's not true. So said Jack Matlock, ambassador to the U.S. and coordinator of Soviet Union policy under Reagan, But such one-sided polemics don't describe how I saw the situation. It was not a victory for either side. it's a victory for both. Ours was a consistent policy of reducing the threat of nuclear war. Matlock brings up the question, and he's become uh, one of the foremost spokespeople from the Reagan administration on it, sort of countering some of the myth-making that surrounded Reagan and the Cold War. Do we even talk of winning or ending the Cold War? Do we, do we connect the Cold War's end, the reduction of threat between the two sides and the fall of the Soviet Union? Madlock reminds us that these are two different things. I have some a recording of him, in an interview that he did with the Road to Now podcast. He sat down with Ben Sawyer, professor at uh, Middle Tennessee State University, and talked about his experiences you able to convince not only, uh, you know, the
0: American people, but also the people surrounding Ronald Reagan? How were you able to play a part in convincing them that that Reagan and Gorbachev could have a a good relationship with each other? That was something of a challenge. First of all, by that time, President Reagan really wanted to meet the Soviet leaders. Uh, He could understand, uh, he he began to understand they really were afraid of him. At first, he, he couldn't figure out why they were. But if they were, he wanted to meet them uh, and clear these things up. But the second thing was he absolutely hated nuclear weapons. And he hated the theory of the mutual uh, assured destruction. Uh, When he found out that we had no effective defense and that the only defense uh, that a president would have would be to counterattack if we were attacked, he said, I can't, you know, you can't tell me that in order to defend the American people, I've got to kill millions of innocent people. That is unacceptable. And that's why he was looking for a defense. But he also, when Gorbachev first proposed that we eliminate nuclear weapons over a 10 year period, he said, yes, that's what we need to do. Now, most of the staff said, oh, that's impossible. Uh, But, um... One thing we had to do was to, uh, we set first for our bureaucracy certain basic rules. Uh, And with Reagan's approval, we said, number one, we are not going to seek superiority. Number two, we're not going to question the legitimacy of the Soviet Union. And number three, we're not going to require a change of the communist system uh,
2: in order to reach other things. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China.
1: I mean, China is not dropping anti democratic paratroopers into Montana.
2: We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th.
0: Now,
1: overall, there's no question by the simple judge that you make of presidents, what occurred on their watch? What did they do in office? He was the person in office when the Cold War ended, or at least when it was significantly reduced, because now you see that... There's still threats. There's still missiles aimed at us. There's still threats. But It was it was an achievement. What his second term did and what the achievement really was, to put it in a proper historical context, because, you know, it's not fair to give too much credit. It's also not fair to blame him for problems we have in 2017, unless there's a direct link when there were so many presidents in between and so many Russian leaders. But what his second term did is ended all the business we discussed in episode 9 and 10, the shockwave and the year of the missile. What was sometimes called, it, it was called this, it's a term that's been forgotten, the second Cold War. Because after detente in the 70s, a lot of people felt that the early 80s were like a second Cold War, where we were back to the 60s again. But was it his choice? Was he in control? Gorbachev asks the same question when he visits Schultz years after Reagan's presidency. And Gorbachev asks Schultz, Do you think any other leader could have ended the Cold War? Schultz thinks about it and says, probably not. Another president might hesitate, especially a Democrat who felt that they might be attacked if they moved too close to the Soviet position. Reagan had enough anti-communist credentials built up to stand up to the right-wing critics. It's tempting to agree with Schultz's take. As we will discuss, attacks from the right wing did come and did hit Reagan. but Democrats like Mondale, Hart, Gary Hart, Ted Kennedy, George McGovern, who did run a campaign in 84, is now forgotten, all campaign on peace platforms. Reduce spending, scrap SDI, get weapons out of space. If they were elected in what instead became Reagan's term, would any of those people have had a mandate from the people to negotiate for peace? So maybe they would have had strength. But who was more likely to get a treaty ratified? Would Mondale fail with his own party, with Southern Democrat conservatives, as Carter did with SALT II? Robert Dalek, historian, says that Reagan deserves a sliver of credit as one of many presidents who essentially held to the broader strategy of deterrence. It wasn't the way Reagan started his term, but he got around to it. I don't know if it's fair. There's a number of arguments for Reagan, but I'd say they come down to two arguments, pressure and diplomacy. Pressure on the moral authority of communism, the wall speech, support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan albeit with consequences evident today, increases in military budget, $1.5 trillion from Carter's budget, the announcement of Star Wars, Depl- you know, a little pressure on Latin America. The Soviets had any idea of developing a beachhead there. He's supporting every country that's not communist, albeit again, with some grotesque results. Diplomacy, and this this one comes from his son, Michael Reagan, who noted that uh, Reagan worked with Saudi Arabia to cripple the USSR by lowering oil prices. And finally, diplomacy, leadership, and pressure on the Soviets after the uprising of Solidarity and the martial law that occurred in Poland. Pressure from placing Pershing missiles. Would another president have done that? The appearance of confidence and command, winning re election with only one state lost and the DC. That was a message to Moscow as much as anything. Firmness mixed with flexibility in Iceland. Those are the pro Reagan arguments. Yet so much that happened did not have any American agency, let alone a Reagan agency. There has been a nuclear accident in the Soviet Union, and the Soviets have admitted that it happened. The Soviet version is this. One of the atomic reactors at the Chernobyl atomic power plant in the city of Kiev was damaged, and there is speculation in Moscow that people were injured and may have died. It started with a test. The 26th of April, 1986, reactor number four at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. The Soviet engineers, this station was run by the federal Soviet government decide to conduct a late-night safety test, which the locals have no idea about. It was ill-advised. The test would simulate what would happen with a blackout and a power failure, in which the systems were deliberately turned off. Well, what happened was that between poorly designed reactors, operators skipping steps on the checklist, that there were problems. Water running through the system is hot. The coolant is gone. And everything turns to steam. A steam so hot... That the plant explodes. The graphite burns and spews out a smoke. There are plumes of fission products in the atmosphere. In the nearby town of Pripyat, people awake, and many of them suddenly feel sick. Because of inaccurate low readings, the reactor chief, Alexander Akimov, assumed that the reactor was intact. He stays with his crew in the reactor building till morning, sending members of his crew to try to pump water into the reactor. None of them wear protective gear most including Akimov, die from radiation exposure within 3 weeks firefighters arrive and try to extinguish the flames they too don't know of the danger hundreds and thousands of soviet citizens patriotic duty file into chernobyl to help some of them exposed to dangerous levels of radiation finally the fire is extinguished by a combined effort of helicopters dropping over 5000 metric tons of sand lead clay and boron into the burning reactor. A helicopter crashes into a construction crane cable nearby, causing it to fall and killing its four-man crew. We were recently stricken by a disaster,
0: the Chernobyl nuclear power accident. It deeply affected the Soviet people and disturbed the world opinion.
1: It took two days for the explosion to be announced, in vague terms on the national news. It was not until Sweden discovered a radiation cloud that it drifted across Europe. Then the true extent of Chernobyl was revealed. Mikhail Gorbachev would later say, it opened up the possibility of much greater freedom of expression to the point that the system as we now knew it could no longer continue. He had not long before introduced his idea of glasnost, openness of ideas and expression. But it was just a top-down policy. In fact, Gorbachev's speech at the time is pretty much Soviet standard. As you all know, a misfortune has befallen us. For the first time ever, we encountered in reality such a sinister force as nuclear energy that has escaped control. And Gorbachev, being a good Soviet leader, did not limit his discussion to just uh, making the public aware but attacked the United States. It is impossible to leave without attention and a political assessment to the way the event at Chernobyl was met by the government's political figures and the mass media in certain NATO countries, especially the USA anti-Soviet campaign. It is difficult to imagine what was said and written these days, that thousands of casualties, mass graves of the dead, desolate Kiev, and that the entire land of the Ukraine has been poisoned and so on. Yes, Gorbachev was attacking the media. They needed a pretext by exploiting this event to dampen the growing criticism of the U.S. conduct on the international scene and of its militaristic course. We realize that there is another sound, another grim warning, that the nuclear era necessitates a new political thinking and a new policy. Here's what Kate Brown said, a Soviet nuclear historian at the University of Maryland. Gorbachev did really imagine an honest discussion of the country's problems in the press and workplaces, but he also saw Glasnost as an incremental process. The meltdown in Chernobyl was sensational and uncontainable. It wasn't a systemic issue to be discussed. It was a terrifying, deadly mistake caused by a poorly built and ineptly run facility. Chernobyl represented a fundamental shift in the relationship between the Soviet citizenry and the state. The system seemed potentially unredeemable. In the early days of Glasnost, stories of Stalin's mass murders decades earlier slowly bubbled to the fore. But those generally receded, so far removed from everyday life. They were history. But Chernobyl meant that every citizen's safety was at stake. No doubt that the Chernobyl accident gives Gorbachev more power over military authorities and accelerates Glasnost. All of these things had to fall in line as well for the Cold War to end. So, pluck or luck or all of it. Matlock says there would be no way Reagan could force his policies on an unwilling Gorbachev. Yeah. What if Chernenko had lived? You just might have gotten four years of the same. Negotiators meeting in Geneva cooking the soup that Gorbachev was talking about, the same old stalling, maybe a few missiles here while we add some more somewhere else. Or as one Russian asked me on Quora, they say Americans won the Cold War. What piece of Russian territory did they have any effect on? <laughs> I'm in a habit of not answering questions. I cannot answer. All this begs a question, how could Reagan get credit? when he can't be in the walnut room with a Kremlin picking a more flexible leader for the Soviet Union who wants to change his own country, he couldn't have aspired a group of engineers to conduct a test or incite the popular movement that followed. Could he really, as his son Michael said, had single-handedly convinced the kingdom of Saudi Arabia to produce more oil? It was the kingdom that was the key member of OPEC, Driving up oil prices by not producing all that it could. Or could it been that after so many years, since the mid-70s, Saudi Arabia wanted to cash in. They needed money for their infrastructure. They were tired of being OPEC's beast of burden. Could that be it too? Was Ronald Reagan there in Lithuania or Azure Jaiban, in Georgia leading nationalistic resistant movements? Was he there inspiring Russian nationalism? That would be a big factor in the Soviet Union's end. He wasn't president when Gorbachev himself cracked down on Lithuania or allowed hardliners to do it. Did Reagan invent tape recorders and fax machines that allowed the human voice to spread and once banned books now became audiobooks spread in cassette tapes throughout the Union? Did he create photocopiers? to spread books around faster than ever before. He had not directly asked for any of the cuts at Reykjavik, uh, nor did he dream of them. He didn't ask for what Gorbachev would later do, to offer to cut the army of the Soviet Union. If he offered that in 1988, it wasn't a request from Reagan. From the Russian, then Soviet side, this Reagan role looks suspect. For instance, Where was Reagan in 1990 to 91 when Gorbachev was appeasing communist hardliners, almost starting to pull back on some of his reforms, and his own foreign minister, the guy that was there at Reykjavik, Shevardnadze, would quit in disgust. It's not Reagan's fault that the 22nd Amendment meant that he was on his ranch at this time. And though Reagan made a challenge to tear down the Berlin Wall, Gorbachev did not during his time in office, nor did he react. The speech was treated with indifference. The same as his evil empire, Reagan showing off, perhaps. Condoleezza Rice said that the diplomats did not consider Reagan's statement to be a policy guide. It was not a request made of the other side. Maybe the only reaction to the Berlin Wall speech, besides the sides to cheering Berliners, was in East Germany, where Eric Honecker questioned why Mr. Gorbachev, why Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall when it was he, Honecker, who was in charge of that wall. Thank you very much. Chi said was always up to keep fascists out, that old chestnut. As a biographer joked, Honecker wouldn't have taken the wall down, but he apparently would have liked to be asked. It actually fueled fears of US-USSR cooperation in East Germany's government. They were afraid Gorbachev was working with Reagan. Now it's a great moment and it will be recorded in history, but in contemporary views, it did little. Reagan's comment, for instance, inspired many thereafter to tear down this wall. But when Chris Gufrey, a 21-year-old waiter, decided that because of all the talk about loosening the wall in February 1989, when he attempted to leap across it, he was shot down and killed by border guards. Long after Reagan's comment. But in any case, the wall did not go down until after Reagan was not president and President Bush promised not to gloat with the Soviets about the wall coming down or standing on the wall, as he said. Reagan's military buildup may have certainly convinced the Soviets to change, but if that's the case, how does that explain the constant resistance that Gorbachev got from hardliners culminating in the coup of August 1991? in which he's put under house arrest, and the future of the USSR is at stake. Reagan could not have controlled those events. How did Reagan make Boris Yeltsin stand on a tank? The answer is he was not there. And there's so much after action that we must, as many Reagan officials insisted, and as Gorbachev insists, And he, as he as Reagan insisted that both he and Gorbachev deserve credit for the accomplishments made and for what was a victory for both sides. I was not intimidated, Gorbachev said later in his memoir. Our system was stifling us and we could no longer make the expenditure. I was not intimidated by American actions. But among American presidents, does Reagan deserve credit? That legacy credit, historical praise, certainly greatness for the success. Let's look at Schultz's contention that no other president had the credentials or the right to do it. And there's truth to that, because Ronald Reagan did face opposition, especially the right. Maybe he was old. Maybe he was out-schemed by Gorbachev. No one in the delegation says that, but many critics did say later. Richard Nixon is caught saying to some, don't put him in the room anymore with a leader. After this summit and and the talks that follow it, Reagan seems willing to work with Gorbachev. There are attacks from some of the usual right-wing sources. The Wall Street Journal calls him Jimmy Reagan in reference to Carter. The Washington Post calls him a pussycat. Another headline says, what happened to Reagan the gunslinger? James McClure of Iowa, conservative senator, warned that we've seen personal relationships go soft before. I'm thinking of Stalin and FDR at Yalta. Welcome to the White House. This ceremony and the treaty we are signing today are both excellent examples of the rewards of patience.
0: To the White House. It was over six years ago, November 18, 1981, that I first proposed what would come to be called the
1: Zero Option. The INF Treaty is the actual achievement. I don't think it's talked about so little because <laughs> there's so much of a larger legacy signed to Reagan, but the actual achievement signed between the U.S. and the USSR. It was a simple proposal. One might say disarmingly simple. <laughs> The INF treaty gets forgotten. The average person thinks, Reagan won the Cold War. Him and Gorba something talked, and then the Soviet Union was dissolved and all the weapons were shelled.
0: Trust, but verify. You repeat that at every
1: meeting. No, it was a specific treaty. It covered 3,000 missiles on each side. It was the largest arms reduction ever. Future presidents would build on it. It did not cover sea missiles. The U.S. still has missiles aimed at Russia, and Russians still have missiles aimed at the United States, which severely limited nuclear warheads, but did not eliminate them. William F. Buckley said, He disappointed me with the INF Treaty. It wasn't tied to a larger question of Europe. The treaty was passed with Reagan's support, with the support of European countries, and support of the Congress, then in 1988, controlled House and Senate by Democrats, who had won in the 1986 elections. Here's what the uh, New York Times said, and it uh, smacks of today a bit... uh, Already right-wing groups, using sophisticated techniques, developed so successfully by the left, liberal coalition in its battle against the confirmation of Judge Bork. Mailing, phone calls, have mailed close to 300,000 letters and circulated 5,000 cassette tapes. The tapes featured the voice of General Bernard Rogers, a former Supreme Commander of NATO, attacking the treaty and what the U.S. was giving up. When the treaty vote comes up, Jesse Helms of North Carolina who had supported Reagan for president in 1976, but now said he wouldn't be a yes man and said he hoped the president wouldn't fight with the one that brought him to the dance. He launches a number of killer amendments designed to destroy the bill. Dan Quayle of Indiana, Pete Wilson of California, senators as well, vote yes in the final vote for the INF Treaty, but all along the way express opposition and reservations about it. Henry Kissinger joins the course, saying that the treaty did not do enough to protect Europe, though he supported a yes vote in the end. But that's not all. An ad with a big umbrella showing Reagan with Neville Chamberlain and Gorbachev with Hitler. Big words. Help us defeat the Reagan-Gorbachev treaty. Reagan being compared to Neville Chamberlain and Munich. The ad's author, Richard Bigure was active against the recent deal with Iran as well. Conservative opposition was strong, and it belies the final vote.
0: Now, it is also true that the impact of the treaty in Europe is affected by the widespread belief that the Reagan administration has rushed the process for both personal and political reasons. And whether that is true or not, or fair or not, very widespread perception that it is the case affects the understanding of the treaty there.
1: Kirkpatrick, Democrats largely were responsible for timely approval of Reagan's signature foreign policy achievement and shutting down the killer amendments from Helms and so many others. The INF Treaty of- passes with four Republicans and one Democrat, Ernest Hollings of South Carolina, voting against the treaty. That belies the opposition. That Reagan faces. And it suggests that had another president leading a bipartisan coalition, how hard they might have had it. What about the role other presidents played? Well, they did play a role. Gerald Ford complained in his running deathbed confidential, write it when I'm gone, where he told a journalist, I'm going to tell you stuff throughout the years, don't publish it till I'm gone. And in 2007, when he died, it was published. He said, Reagan acted like the B-1 bomber, the MX missile, the Trident sub-program magically sprung to life during his term. And Ford blamed Reagan for dumping on the Helsinki Accords, which reduced their effectiveness. Ford's achievement in the Helsinki Accords, forcing the Soviet Union to address those accords, to address dissidents, was the first step in that direction. Yes, Reagan would get Gorbachev later to address human rights as as one of their functions. There's other presidents involved in the end of the Cold War. Kennedy's face down in the Cuban Missile Crisis, Truman's redesign of Cold War policy to face the Iron Curtain, Eisenhower's Marshall buildup and permanent military, military establishment, Nixon going to China certainly was a significant deal in cutting off the power of the Soviet Union to just maintain a two-way superpower relationship, putting some pressure on them. Carter's initial mobilization of the Allies over Poland, his harsh criticism of Afghanistan, the actions of successors, Bush and Clinton supporting Yeltsin and preventing an immediate return to communism when the nation was so vulnerable. Well, I can't agree to Dalek and his kind of sliver of credit theory. It must be acknowledged that there was a bevy of presidential actions that led to that historic outcome of the Cold War ending. What about the role Democrats played? Oh, come on, I know, you might say, especially I know Reagan fans might say, what do you mean, what about the Democrats? Reagan was in office, he was a Republican. But the pressure of campaigns, of their statements, forced a tactics change on the part of Reagan and allowed him a political excuse, perhaps, to go in a direction he might have wanted to go, to back off the hardline talk a little and not get punished for it because, hey, look at Walter Mondale. No war in space campaign that I'm up against. You know, Mondale would say in uh, January 1984, as the re-election campaign begins, it's three minutes to midnight, and we aren't talking to the Soviets at all. Reagan, stubborn, could hold the position, rock that he was at certain points, felt the pressure of that question. Even more moderates like Sam Nunn called for a joint 24-hour watch station in Geneva to prevent nuclear war. It would be linked instantly to both militaries so they could do something to stop an event before it happened. Ted Kennedy may have, according to a declassified memo, offered and dropped off his connections with American TV networks. To go on American TV, to speak, to make his case for peace. John Tunney, a former California senator who was tied to Kennedy, had contacts with Russians. And there's a KGB memo of the meeting that survived. Kennedy gets bashed for this. Uh, it could be on the edge of Logan Act type stuff. Uh, but, you know, I do think you need to think about the attitude of 83 and 84 and how scared people were. And how the situation seemed to go to the brink and no one was talking. And... You know, Kennedy did get bashed for this. The long-time family legacy, Cuban Missile Crisis, back channels. Ted Kennedy had helped evacuate Soviet Jews in the 70s, and so had contacts there. One of Reagan's arms negotiators, Max Kempelman, said that Kennedy informed the proper agencies of any contact he had and that the administration actually liked having this back channel open. I think the point is that there was pressure on Reagan coming from these directions as well. And so the Reagan message changes in 1984. Here's what he says. Uh, He's saying, We do have common interests to reduce the level of arms. No more talk of ash heaps. Among the pressure Reagan faced and the critics that he had were from his own staff. Here's what he writes in his memoir years later. Some of my advisors, including a number in the Pentagon, did not share my dream. He says, dream of a world free of nuclear weapons. They claimed war was inevitable, and we had to prepare. They used to throw words around like throw weights and kill ratios, as if they were baseball scores. But for the eight years I was president, I never let the dream fade from my mind. Wolfowitz, Pearl, Weinberger, Casey, Bill Clark, these are among those who did not share his dream. Finally, Ronald Reagan faced two additional obstacles between his dream and the results. And both were presidents of the United States. Both were Republicans. And the knowledge of their actions has not been well covered or documented. They are Presidents Bush and Nixon. Obstacles? Well, Nixon is someone who we may have to rewrite the history on, especially the post-presidency, because the story might be that he just sort of faded After Watergate. And although shamed, Nixon was actually very influential in Republican circles and had a large group of former government officials that he could influence, the top of which being Kissinger. At first, when Reagan is elected, Nixon's an important contact for him. He had battled with Ford, so he wasn't going to talk to him too much. He's the last Republican president. Nixon informed him that I am yours to command. And Reagan just doesn't take that as something symbolic. He takes advantage of it. For instance, he puts Al Haig at the State Department, Secretary of State, over George Schultz, who he initially wanted to put. I mean, it's a big mistake, but he does it because Nixon asked for it. And Nixon asked for it because Haig was loyal to him, and he wanted information to be able to be influenced a bit. Nancy Gibbs, the President's Club, has been invaluable in rendering visible where these presidents act together, and how Nixon fits in. The crook by the 1980s had become the sage of New Jersey, advisor to Reagan, Bush, and even Clinton. You have to consider Nixon here. He could influence editorials. Either he would write editorials himself and get published, or through Kissinger, who was still in his orbit. And something happens with Nixon... We know he's not personally impressed, but he jokes with people like, can you imagine this guy being president? Uh, after, After Reykjavik, he's not pleased, and he writes critical editorials. He's no longer at Reagan's command in 87 and 88. And conservatives took pleasure in the unpleasurable task of taking on a conservative icon, knowing at least Nixon had their back. Here's what William Sapphire says noting that Nixon and Kissinger had been in favor of detente, and now they weren't. In the battle between the hardliners turned detente nicks, and the detente nicks turned hardliners, I'll pick the latter, William Safire said. Even after meeting Gorbachev, he still considers him a wolf in sheep's clothing, the same face, but the policies haven't changed. In The President's Club, Gibbs, Gibbs talks about how Nixon was called into the White House for reprogramming, Private meeting, no cameras allowed, Nixon's brought up to the residence quietly. After that, he calms down the criticism, but he would not support the INF Treaty. And a final, very tense meeting is held in 1987 with Reagan, Nancy Reagan, and Nixon. Little said, insiders knew that the right senator knows Reagan heard Nixon's concerns, and insiders knew that Nixon got Reagan's ear. That helped Nixon. Both sides were pleased, and there wasn't much to say. We talked earlier about how maybe, you know, Ken Alderman's theory, that maybe it was better that Reykjavik didn't, like, lead to any real words on paper because it might not have been ratified. There might have been too much political opposition, maybe on both sides, maybe just on the U.S. side. Who knows? Uh, But one thing it ended up functioning as was a kind of a trial balloon. And it it drew out the people that were going to be against Reagan so that he knew who to deal with later. And Nixon is definitely one of them. Ending the Cold War would face another presidential challenge. I will not allow this country to be
0: made weak again. Never. Perhaps what is happening will change our world forever and perhaps not, a prudent
1: skepticism is in order, and so is hope. As he began to run for president himself, Vice President Bush, this is George H.W. Bush, urged a little more caution with the Russians. The most obvious symbol was picking Dan Quayle, an initial critic of the INF Treaty, as his VP candidate, to assuage the conservatives. There are other hints. Brent Sokov, who's close to Bush, close to Nixon, said that Gorbachev was making trouble still and trying to turn our allies against us. He also said the Cold War's not over. Robert Gates said that Soviet deployments have not changed. They have the same plans as before. Marlon Fitzwater calls Gorbachev a drugstore cowboy. James Baker asked some of the Reagan people during the transition, are we moving too fast here? An indication that Baker didn't want to be Schultz. Didn't want to just finish up Reagan's job, but to take a, what would come to be known as the pause. A bit of a policy change between the Reagan and Bush administrations. Staffers at stake who had worked with Reagan and Schultz in dealing with Gorbachev were confused and frightened. Schultz aide Roseanne Ridgway said, we went into limbo. We damn near lost the Cold War. This policy, now called the pause, went on for at least six months. Into George Bush's administration, stalling with Gorbachev and putting him perhaps in jeopardy, maybe even ruining the current relationship with Russia by in strengthening hardliners and weakening reform. who knows Jack Matlock said that the uh, Jack Matlock said that the pause confused the Russians and left Gorbachev vulnerable. The fact that the pause was then followed by a resumption of talks. You know, a meeting between Baker and Shevardnazzi in uh, Wyoming, which then would lead to a Malta summit, and some arms cuts. That reflects the historical perspective. Here's what James Mann, the author, says. It didn't seem like that at the time. In 89, it felt like policy change. I bring up these points to enlighten the counterfactual. Reagan was no longer president, but how he handled a new development, a leader willing to deal, versus how other presidents handled it. Introducing what turned out to be needless doubts, revealing more about their own weaknesses than the weaknesses of the situation. That spotlights his unique contribution, in a way. Using the old football metaphor, and uh, Thomas Sowell says Reagan read the coverage and called an audible. He was continuously underestimated by his opponents who thought his ending the Cold War was all luck. Yes, you know, you'd get in trouble for football metaphors, but you get it. He saw the dynamics as they changed and adjusted his policy. Here's what James Mann says. His harsh anti-Soviet rhetoric served to marshal support for future conciliatory policies. James Mann and Thomas Sowell have a point. By 1991, the famed Pershing missiles that we talked about in the last episode that were built up to show strength were now being destroyed because there was no need for them less than 10 years after their placement. And it's possible that might not have happened if someone was in the chair who was scared to do it. Dan Quails felt, like many, we were right to increase our defense budget. Without it, the liberalization we are seeing would not have taken place. Was Jack Matlock. Jack Matlock finds it important to remind that Reagan was not perfect. Should not criticize the way the plays went now with hindsight. We had harsh things to say. Our statements may have seemed undiplomatic, undi- but they had a purpose to delegitimize their system of government. And you could say that we built up too much in the early going, but when a mistake can destroy your country, Sure, you might go a little over. This is to be expected. Reagan's closest advisors on this question are in consensus that he laid out a policy dual track. And here's a key, fully executed and supported both. The dual track, common in arms control negotiations, talked about in the last episode, presents strength, but also flexibility. Whether it was truly a rebellion, as uh, the author James Mann points out in his title, The Rebellion of Ronald Reagan. Was it Reagan taking on his own staff, taking on his conservatives? That doesn't really fit with my view. Or if it was simply more what I think, that how he always approached this goal. Nonetheless, he did it. Uh, His moves on other policies deserve critique and sometimes rebuke. His policy here, his whole policy regarding the Cold War, and not just half, deserves to be a model. So as we address this question, it's important to look at how we view presidents. I think we like it when they give us something. You know, good economy, a working or popular piece of legislation, less fear, bit of peace, prestige on the world stage. It's not fair. We are all wrong to do this, really. The framers want an executive to do a good job— Day-to-day management vested with the executive power. Management of the will of Congress, what Congress wanted to do. Not to be given things. Considering the tension in America in his first term and generally throughout the second half of the 20th century, how can you take the reduced tension of the 1990s and not attribute anything to the guy in the driver's seat? Yes, other forces powered the car, maybe. Cleared the lanes. Gorbachev, previous presidential moves, Nixon going to China, creating a rival to the Soviet Union, oil prices, the decision of OPEC, the decision to rescind technologies, development, the photocopier, nuclear double takes, pressures from liberals in both nations, Chernobyl accident. But he made the moves. While some results seem a little the result of exigent circumstances, not to offend Thomas Sowell, but luck. Some stems, like his support of Solidarity in Poland, leveraging the Catholic Church to put pressure there, the successful coalition of allies in Europe, his little known performance at Reykjavik, uh, pushing back on right wing supporters to ensure that the treaty passed, and pursuing the negotiations. These actions could even be called brilliant. There's no other logic that Reagan deserves credit for ending the Cold War during his presidency. A credit that cannot be and should not be expunged by false history or the seesaw of which party happens to be in power. We don't get to dice and slice history. The model must be preserved in vivo and in whole so that the true actions not the parts that future actors rewrite and claim for their own. The whole actions can be a model.
2: This is part 11. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.